Hey guys, just a quick message before we get into this week's episode. You've heard me talk about the Camp Ojibwa History Project Bricks of Fame for the past few weeks now. It's a really cool program. Camp was super generous to allow us to use the space around the Collegiate Week bench for commemorative bricks for people to be able to buy a permanent lasting spot right there on the campgrounds, put it at one of the most hallowed spots on all of camp's grounds, and to be kind enough to let the proceeds help further the project. I told you before it was going to be a limited time promotion and that time is coming to a close. So January 31st will be the last day you'll be able to buy a Brick of Fame. Uh, not just this year, but ever. This is a one-time deal and we're going to have the bricks available through the month of January, but then that's it. So if you have not done so, I implore you to head over to campojibblehistory.org, click on Bricks of Fame, don't let this chance pass you by. It's a super cool way to permanently put your name or a family member's name or a friend's name right there on the grounds of Camp Ojibwa and also at the same time support the Camp Ojibwa History Project going forward and doing the things we, we're going to do, the things we have done, and some of the cool projects that are coming up in the future. So that's it. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I am your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week on the podcast, a special double shot. I've got Hank and Joel Koransky. Uh, these guys came up this summer to camp, and I was able to talk to them both together, and it was a little condensed on uh, both sides, so they're each one each interview is a little bit short, so I decided we'd do a double shot this week. So today's episode will be Joel Koransky, and then on Wednesday we're going to release another episode with Hank. These guys were big at camp in the 60s, tons of athletic achievements in terms of camp. Sounds to me like Joel basically won all of the weeks, uh, <laughs> and and everything else, really. Uh, but two really great guys, great to talk to brothers who were at camp at the same time, each had their own sort of set of experiences, but also the ability to kind of have some shared experiences as brothers, really interesting. And they note, and I believe this still continues to be true, the only pair of brothers to go 1-1. One, one. So, two episodes this week. First up, here we go, Joel Koransky, on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. First and foremost, for the record, please state your name and years at camp. Joel Koransky began as a camper in 1960 at age 11, 
came uh, five straight years um, through 13, and then was a junior counselor in 65, I guess, um, and then senior counselor in 67 and 69, so I missed 66 and 68. Awesome. How did you first learn about camp? What was, how did you first know anything about Ojibwa? Um, in 1959, my dad, a dermatologist, um, was asked by uh, Al Schwartz to come up as a camp physician, uh, which mm. he did for two weeks over the summer of 59. And, and Hank and I were, were um, thinking this morning, well, how did my dad get to know the Schwartz family? And we're not really sure. Hmm. Um, it might have been through some other physicians who served at camp uh, one being mm -hmm. Milt Eisenstein, another one being a pediatrician whose name was last name was Stein. I don't remember his first name, but they were family friends, ah. and perhaps that's how my dad learned about Ojibwa. And he came up in '59, and then I think after that, thought that this would be a perfect venue for his three sons. Nice. And then did you have a traditional camp call? Did Al come over or Mickey? Al came over, yes, and said I remember him sitting in the living room. And I don't remember anything other than Al sitting in the <laughs> living room. That was it. And Al, I don't even know if Mickey was there. Mm. I mean, Al was a presence enough. I was going to say, I get the impression that once, once Al's there, that sort of takes over everything. Yes, yes. And I don't remember what was said, but I do know the next summer we were at camp. Nice. You had a camp call the next summer you were at camp. Tell me the first thing you remember about Camp Ojibwa. I remember Cabin 8 um, immediately falling into a, a, a really good group of friends. Um, I mean, that's, it's not a concrete memory. It's just a memory of, of associating with Duke Gutterman, Mark Lieberman, um, Mark Speckstein, uh, Stanton Miller. Um, that group mm. was, was just the beginning of... Um, I wouldn't say lifelong friendships, but but um, they, along with other people I met here, um, are people who, um, if I saw at any time in my life from then on, there'd be an immediate bond. Nice. That's something to talk about. Yeah. So it's just, my, f my first recollection is not concrete. It's um, of being a part of a, a great group of people. Awesome. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the camp day for you when you were a young camper. What was the camp day like? <laughs> uh, obnoxious Reveille uh, played by, <laughs> you know, Hank and I were talking about this succession of trumpeters. Um, and just for the listening audience, Hank is your brother, who Hank's we will be brother. hearing from very right. soon. <laughs> uh, Steve Landsman, Lou Fletcher, uh, you know all the names. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, standing in line uh, with terrible posture because we were all so dopey. Um, <laughs> uh, Al uh, asking us to raise our arms and in, in breathing, inhaling and exhaling. Uh, dip or shower. Uh, Are you more of a dip guy or more of a shower guy? No, shower. I, I barely made the four-peer swim. Uh, you know, <laughs> I probably passed on the four-peer four swim my first couple of years. So definitely not a water guy. Nice. There are definitely no, there's definitely no one who is an in-betweener when it comes to this stuff. That's They're either all dip or all shower. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, long showers. There was no limit to the shower that they had anyway. Nice. So, so unending supply of hot water. <laughs> nice. 
and uh, then so of course um, you know you had to clean the cabin, um, and you know that was important. Lamps were very strict. Um, you know, uh, then there was um, after cleaning up morning activity, which is usually not that competitive. Mm. Um, you know, it was instruction time in yeah. the morning, um, and then um, a swim before lunch if you wanted, and then of course lunch, and then um, probably one of the nicest times of the day was rest period. <laughs> it's a real shame that the world can't have rest period. I'll be honest. <laughs> well, you know, at my age, um, naps are important. So, you know, yeah, I was indoctrinated by the rest period. <laughs> and then, of course, the afternoon activities began more of the league stuff. Mm. Uh, then the afternoon dip, um, followed by dinner, and then early evening activity, which was often competitive, mm. uh, one of the leagues. And then late evening was um, something like a movie or the campfire, mm. um, and then, um, you know, got ready for bed, and then there was taps, and a lot of conversation after that, and shenanigans. Sure. <laughs> Until the <laughs> counselors had enough. <laughs> uh, in terms of the leagues and sports, were you a sports guy? Did you like sports? Yes. Um, I think my dad had the wisdom to see that his, his boys would, his sons would fit in well with what was then the competitive atmosphere mm. um, at Ojibwa. And, um, you know, certainly one of the reasons um, I remember it fondly and one of the reasons I'm here now is because um, I was successful. Mm. Um, and um, you know, all my memories are positive. So um, that's, you know, that's unfortunate in that way. Nice. I'm sure your name is on a few plaques in the mess hall. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any great sports stories? Great Ojibwa sports stories you could share with us? Um, probably my um, most vivid memory um, is um, probably 1967 was the, or 65, my first year as a junior counselor. Um, between the late evening activity and taps, or during late evening activity, if I was free, I would go to the um, new courts, the new basketball courts. And remember, then there were only two courts, the old and the new. Mm. Um, and I can tell you a story about the old, uh, <laughs> which was an oversized court. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, it was oversized and very uneven. Interesting. Um, now, the old court, that's where the late courts are now? Yes. There's okay. A, yeah. Um, but it, um, that year... Uh, six of us, me, my brother Hank, Gary Greenberg, were one three. The other three were Lou Schwartz, uh, Larry Heyman, and Billy Birkenfeld. And uh, we played intense basketball hmm. as, as many nights as we could at that time, basically as the sun was setting. And um, that to me was was wonderful because I, I played mostly basketball. Yeah. yeah. I was a terrible baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> now at that time and softball was still the, the sport at Ojibwa right? it was yeah. yes it was the uh, the Windy City Ripper yes um, <laughs> <laughs> which you don't see of course right. anywhere except the Midwest of course um, yeah um, and and for similar reason I'm terrible at golf ah. you know, ba baseball and golf kind of you know they're, they're good and I, I was not <laughs> <laughs> But having that sort of core group to go out and play basketball with. And, and 
it's interesting to hear you say that because that's not an organized league. That's you guys basically doing a pickup game. Yes. And making a point of doing it over and over and having that time with each other. My other sports memory um, relates to the old basketball court, that oversized uneven court. <laughs> and when I was um, a uh, first-year Cabin 13, um, I was a, a captain of one of the teams. I think there were five teams. And um, early in the season, I was playing against my brother's team, Hank's team. Mm. I went for a shot. He bumped me in the hip. I came down on the edge of the court and broke an ankle. Um, and Denny was nearby. And Denny carried me, hand carried me from the old court to probably a, way, a car. And, and I went to the hospital. It was x-rayed. I was casted. Stayed in a cast for three weeks. Wow. And I was given a choice. Should I stay at camp for three weeks and do nothing or go home and then come back for the, like, the last four weeks of camp? Mm. I decided to stay at camp. And every day I put a blanket out on the campus and tried to get a tan. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, the funny part is, you know, my dad uh, was a dermatologist. And, you know, when you come up to camp, you're given a trunk sure. along with a care package from your parents. Absolutely. And in that care package was, was a cream for the sun. And I didn't know what it was for. I thought it was going to help me tan. <laughs> And this is 1964, 63. Mm -hmm. And I put this cream on, laid out on the campus with my cast, hoping to get a tan. <laughs> sure. And a couple years later, realized that this was not a tanning cream. This was the first sunscreen that came out. My dad was protecting me. So, you know, after a couple of days, I'm not getting a tan. Well, years later, I figured out it's because I was putting sunscreen on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> thanks, Dad. But, yeah. you know, but thanks, Dad. <laughs> Other sports memories? I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, you know, I, I was just fortunate to be able to, to compete um, successfully. Speaking of sports, though, I do believe that when it came to your final year as a camper, you were selected fairly highly in the Collegiate Week draft, from what I've been told. Yes. Um, I, I didn't know then, but I know now that, that there's a phenomenon called 1-1. Yes. Um, and I was a 1-1 and, and won that year. Nice. Uh, it, was, it was very nice. I had a, a good, good last year. Uh, won basketball. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I didn't ask for these things. Sure. I, mean, I was just had, had some gifts. Um, and um, uh, Mark Specks Stein and I were co-mayors of 13. Mm. Uh, I got to be chief of the Braves. Wow, um, that's quite a year. It was it was a really good year. Nice. Um, I, I I do remember as I think is it age twelve when you're eligible to become mm -hmm. a brave. Um, George Carmen initiated me, mm. um, and I wish I could remember who I initiated. Um, I just <laughs> I just can't remember. It might have been Gary Kagan. You're right. You're pretty close to the end of that. It, it started the initiation as really? it was kind of comes starts to go away in the late sixties. You know, Hank and I have thought about you know, things that we did as campers, um, mm -hmm. like um, intercamp competition, uh, like sure. with Interlochen, um, camp socials, mm -hmm. Chippewa and Agawak. Um, I wonder if, if we still have Circus Day, Absolutely. Lazy Day. Uh, we don't do Lazy Day because we moved Collegiate Week to the end of camp. 
So for the listener, if you don't know, when collegiate week was the sixth week of camp, the day after the competition was lazy day. Right. Right. And basically you got to sleep in, you basically didn't do much. It sounds great. (laughs) And and when we got here yesterday, uh, Denny sat us down and more or less gave us a history of what happened from the time camp was basically sports-oriented competition to a more um, uh, even-minded, fairer way to compete. Yeah. um, Just a different morality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talk about a lot of things that, you know, you couldn't do this at camp anymore. Like dipper shower is a great example. We talk about a lot of things that can't really go on in today's world or whatever. But one of the things that is easy to overlook is the change in philosophy, that being that, hardcore, intense competition sports camp where you had some of the best Jewish athletes from Chicago here every summer to being something more all-inclusive that made sure, you know, it wasn't just a favorites and not favorites, a haves and haves not situation, that it was a little more, as you say, even-minded. Yeah. Like, that is probably the most significant change to camp in the long form. What you just mentioned about Jewish athletes from Chicago brings back another memory. Um I think it was um, 1966, uh, I know I was a senior in high school, when, um, and again, I, I can't remember who, as a coach, it was an Ojibwa uh, person put together a team, a BBYO team, mm. to compete against the um, CYO, the Catholic Youth Group. And... Um, you know, Lou Schwartz, uh, Larry Heyman, Mark Lieberman, uh, I think Speck Stein, I was on a team, on the team. Um, there were a couple of other athletes from New Trier, Billy Birkenfield, um, Larry Rosenzweig, hmm. a seven-foot high school <laughs> wow. uh, from New Trier. Wow. So half the team was Ojibwa, half the team were other really good Jewish ballplayers. And um, the final was played at DePaul. Mm. Um, it was I think late winter like the end of the basketball season and we were playing against the CYO champion team which was all inner city African American amazing athletes Sure. but we were coached Mm. and organized and we kicked butt nice it was was really a fun experience nice It it was a wonderful <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, we're talking about sports, but one of the other aspects of camp, of course, is being in the cabin and being with counselors or when you're a counselor, being with your kids. And you mentioned a bunch of names. Are there guys that we were either your staff or later on were your campers that really stick out that you had made great connections with? Jim Nachman, mm. probably number one. Um, you know, a great soul. Um, we became... Uh, close, not only at camp, but uh, we both uh, went to Highland Park High School, ah. and we stayed close um, through college. Um, he happened to be a, a great support of mine when uh, my very first girlfriend was killed in a car accident. Oh, wow. And um, he was a, just a wonderful support mm. um, at that time. Um, we lost contact um, after college, and it's a great regret I have. Mm. Um, and... Um, did not really have any contact until uh, um, his funeral mm. at the chapel at University of Chicago. Yeah, uh, when I learned uh, what a uh, 
phenomenal career he had. And yeah, phenomenal life. truly. Yeah. Um, I've stayed close to Gary Greenberg. Um, we introduced him to his wife, who's a very old friend of mine. Nice. Um, I'm going to have lunch with him tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's about it for, you know, long-term, um, I guess, contacts. Gotcha. With, with camp. Now, camp is always, as much as it's been a sports camp, and there's that aspect of the sort of camaraderie between the boys, both counselors and staff and whatever, another aspect of camp, which we saw just last night on the stage with Stunt Night, is that sort of entertainment side, the sort of getting on the stage side. Yes. And especially in those days, you didn't have camp without both pieces. Well, on paper, we're a competitive sports camp, but being on the stage was a big part of camp. Yes. Tell me some of your experiences with the Ojibwa stage. Well, um, first and foremost uh, was uh, Visitor's Weekend when we had the traditional minstrel show. Sure. Um, with and, and, you know, the succession of musical um, leads um, and, and counselors, um, Dale Fisk, uh, Lou Mager, uh, Paul James, uh, Lou Fletcher, I would include. Um, I mean, these were great, talented people. Mm. You know, who, who lent their expertise to to you know great stuff. You know, we had the Ojibwa singers. Um, I had the, the privilege um, of of singing um, uh, "Weem Away." I remember I did the solo when I had a when I had a falsetto voice. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> there were talent shows. Mm. Um, are there still talent shows? Uh, there are. These days, I know that in your time, I think that there was a sort of a staff talent show and a camper talent show. And okay. nowadays, it's we get together most of a show <laughs> by combining all the above. <laughs> Reminds me of the... the t- yes, there was a year when we had a concert talent show. And Hank and I got on stage and juggled for about two minutes. Wow. <laughs> okay. Not that successfully. Well... <laughs> <laughs> That is one thing Ojibwa will teach you. It's it, it's more about just being willing to try. Yeah. You know, the success level, eh, okay, but yeah. and, willing to try. And sure. thinking of stunt nights, um, you know, we, we had to put together 10, 15-minute stunts with music, um, memorized lines, you know, a cogent story. Um, uh, so, you know, there was certainly more emphasis then on um, creativity. Yeah. Uh, at this point, most of what I know about stunt night from that era comes through Elliot. So to me, I just assumed that every stunt was 20 minutes based on some sort of opera that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> and 17 kids learned every line. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's very true. Yeah. I, I, I remember one year was 67. I was the coach of Wisconsin. We happened to win that year, too. Um, you really had a good run. I, Let's I be had, clear. You had, had a really a, good I had run. A very good run in the, in the late sixties, um, and that that year, I think I picked on the turn too. I was ten and eleven. Wow. Um, I think my first pick was um, Bruce Berman, maybe. Um, I think I'd have to look at the plaque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we had a we had a stunt or a skit that um, kind of. Um, memorialized the, the Roaring Twenties. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> okay. So it was a lot of music. And, sure. You know, we didn't win, but it was fun. <laughs> uh, 
Elliot likes to always say that, you know, people remember stunt night as the good old days, but in actuality, even then there were, you know, two or three good stunts every time and the rest were clunkers. Yes. Um, but it does seem to me that the structure of how you guys put your stunts together, uh, I think there was more time involved, uh, arguably more creativity in the camp, but also less distraction. You weren't playing as many sports. You didn't have to get to your phone at night to text your girlfriend back home. All that sort of stuff went away. So when you're bored, what are you going to do? You're going to go rehearse. Oh, I, I remember. Um, well, you couldn't do anything before the week, certainly. Mm, right. Um, and I remember after taps, you know, I would sit in um, my bunk, maybe with my JC, and, you know, write out a script, you know, painfully on, on yellow dog paper. Um, and it'd take, take a couple nights to yeah. figure out a script on who's going to play what um, and do, do this or that. Uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was, it was creative. So you, you came back to camp as a staff man. Uh, what were the experiences like as a staff man? How, did, how was it different? Who were some of your co-staff or what cabins were you in? Started with, again, the help of Elliot's memory. It was a JC in Cabin 8. Um, Jim Nachman was the other JC. Elliot was the SC. Um, wow, that's an all-star crew. It was quite a crew. <laughs> um, we had, it was just a lot of fun. I um, mean, you know, and I, I, I remember being uh, my first senior counselor in Cabin 3. And in 67 and 69, I was a senior counselor in, in Cabin 6. Mm. The only thing I remember um, was just being very serious about um, being in a, um, you know, in a position of authority. An influence on, on kids. I mean, it's just a very, it's a sobering um, responsibility, and I took it seriously. Absolutely. Um, and that's mainly what I remember. I was just looking out for the welfare of the kids, particularly yeah. as a senior counselor. Certainly. Um, and how I did, I have no idea. You'd have to ask the kids who were cabin three and the cabin <laughs> six. <laughs> we'll catch up to them. Um, <laughs> but you make a good point about the influence because one thing I think it's easy for us to overlook today is that most of our cabins have five or six counselors in them. And in those days, having just one senior counselor, I mean, that's a lot of influence. That one person is going to make a lot of decisions for a whole group of kids and really push them one way or the other on certain decisions. And, and um, the only real time you could do that was after taps. <clears throat> um, when, you know, everyone was together. And um, you could review what happened during the day, and um, try not to single anybody out, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, you know work on improving. Of course, in the <clears throat> after taps period, you have your your storytelling, you have your cabin meetings. Now, uh, these days, of course, we talk of Zeke and his uh, yes, the <clears throat> former handyman camp. What were some of the stories? like that that stick out from those days? I didn't talk of Zeke. I did not want to scare these kids at all. I did once try the uh, story of um, the most dangerous game. Mm, sure. Um, you know that story? I do, yeah. Which I couldn't remember a word to tell you now. But <laughs> I tried it once and um, probably fumbled it miserably and uh, <laughs> never did it again. My my first two years at camp, I was in cabin two, and uh, I liked the storytelling, but I learned pretty early on that really, it didn't matter if you got to a point, you just had to keep talking, yes. and eventually they're all going to be asleep. Yes, that's <laughs> <true>. <laughs> well, you also knew that, yeah, if, if they didn't say anything, they were either wrapped or asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a grown-up now, and with as much life as has passed, 
looking back. Uh, what would you say is the influence camp has had on your life? The value of friendship, probably number one. Um, of course, I was here, I would say, during formative years. Um, so I was just fortunate that it was a, that it was a positive experience. Um, you know, I, I just feel very fortunate um, to have been here at a time when, um, although there was some turmoil um, outside of camp, um, camp was still pretty insulated. I think it's always been pretty insulated from what's going on. I mean, when, when you got here, um, you were here to enjoy yourself um, and, and compete and, and um, keep close with your, with your friends. Um, I think for me, individually, it was nothing but affirmation mm. um, about friendship um, and, and staying on a good path, a moral path. It was all reinforced at camp. Excellent. The last question I always ask everyone, all I ask is, tell me one or two great camp stories. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'll mention um, two. Um, one has to do with my father, um, who uh, fortunately I was reminded the other day by Mr. Friedman I, I didn't know that uh, the camp physician was uh, one of his responsibility, his or her responsibilities, was to enlighten the older campers about the birds and the bees. And um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if this has come up before. No, that um, that certainly never occurred to me. But, um, <laughs> but the one of the years my my dad did it, <clears throat> at the end of the talk, he asked for questions, one of which was, "How do you prevent getting venereal disease?" Okay. And in this one sentence, his response was, keep your pecker in your pants. <laughs> Which could have been just his talk in a nutshell, I'm sure. Certainly. And um, from what I understand, you know, that, that trickled down, I wouldn't say trickled down, f flooded down very quickly to the rest of the camp, <laughs> anyone who could, who could hear uh, I probably didn't hear about it for a couple of years. <laughs> wow. Damn, that was good advice. <laughs> uh, the last thing I'll mention was, um, or is, I think one of the years I was here as a counselor. Um, you know, at, at night here, it gets really dark, mm. um, which can be a blessing in disguise. And there was a, a short interval when... Um, a few unnamed people would um, lie down in the middle of the campus in very dark clothing. And if someone walked by, they would reach out and grab their leg. <laughs> and you could hear the scream. <laughs> um, I think they call that wear rabbit. I see. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I definitely appreciate it. We'll see if we can't grab your brother and get him in here. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. There we go. Another one in the books. Great, great interview with Joel Koransky. I do have to apologize for the sound quality on this one. Same with Hanks, since we only had an opportunity to record during the middle of the camp day. We caught a lot of uh, extra noise coming in, so I apologize for that. You're hearing a lot more background stuff than you normally would in an episode. 
And as I mentioned at the top of the show, a double shot this week. So tune back in on Wednesday to hear his brother, Hank, tell his camp stories. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Send me an email, Christopher at CampoJimboHistory.org, or just head over to the website and check things out, www.CampoJimboHistory.org. You can find out all the information there. We're going to have the Bricks of Fame still available for a short time, so if you have not done so, head over there, get your brick, make sure you get it before time runs out. That's it for this week. Still here in balmy New York City. Still like a summer day. I'm heading outside for a cigar. <laughs>